Um, so tonight's reading um, is from Daniel chapter 9, um, verses 1 to 19, and that can be found on page 746 of the Church Bible. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers, who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favour of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Thank you very much, Mary. Now let's read on from verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. 
At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks, or seventy-sevens, might be a, a better translation. Seventy weeks, or sevens, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, let's pray that God will teach us from this big vision. Our Father, we pray that we will understand this vision. There are details perhaps that are difficult to grasp, but the essential truths in it are clear to us. Lord, we pray that we will not only understand it, but apply it. And like Daniel has been moved throughout these chapters, throughout these visions, we pray that we will be so moved as God's people gathered here under His Word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Now, inside the service sheet, I've given you quite detailed notes tonight that I think will help us get our heads around not only this vision in and of itself, but as we come towards the end of our studies on the book of Daniel, to try to stand back from the book as a whole and begin to apply it to us corporately as a church. Now, let me begin in verse 1. And as we've seen before with these visions, they are uh, precisely uh, dated. So, read with me chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are uh, the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, uh, Daniel. So, the vision is precisely dated. The first year of the reign of Darius is 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire has fallen, and we read about that in chapter 5 and chapter 6. The Babylonian Empire has fallen to the Medo-Persian Empire. But the emphasis in the text is what Daniel understands from the Scriptures. Daniel understands from the Scriptures. Verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, the Scriptures, the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And Daniel is understanding from the Word of God, specifically Jeremiah chapter 25, that the nation of Judah will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. In other words, the exile was prophesied to come to an end. And so Daniel looks at what is happening around him, the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. But more importantly, he picks up the Word of God, and he reads of the end of the exile. And so he is moved 
to uh, pray. And that's really key and really simple and really profound that Daniel is moved to pray. He's moved to pray at a significant juncture or turning point in the history of the people of God. He's moved to pray at the end of a bleak time. Now, what we get in the bulk of the chapter, verses 3 to 18, is Daniel's prayer confessing sin. Now, let me just rattle through these headings. Firstly, his prayer is serious, serious, biblical, and covenantal. Now, what do I mean by that? The manner of his prayer is striking. Verse 3, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, try to uh, picture the Daniel of the book. Think back to chapter 1, the young man, the teenager who resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Chapter 2, Daniel, who asked the king with wisdom, tact, and diplomacy for time, and waited on the Lord, and prayed to the Lord, and got his friends around him, and he said, we will not get out of this mess unless God gets us out of this mess. Chapter 5, in obscurity, he comes back and interprets the writing on the wall. Chapter 6, he will not stop praying for even 30 days, and he is thrown into uh, the lion's uh, den. There's a recurring verse in chapter 6, Daniel just prayed as he always did. And it may well be that the content of his praying in chapter 6 that led him to be thrown into the lion's den is this prayer that we recorded in chapter 9. It's the same uh, year. And then in the visions, Daniel's reaction, he falls on his face. He's appalled by the visions. He's a serious, serious believer. I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. His demeanor conveys His seriousness and His discipline in prayer. And the content of the prayer is saturated in Scripture. For example, verse 4b, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. He's constantly referring to and is informed by Scripture, and at the heart of that is the covenant relationship between God and His people. God said, if you are obedient, I will bless you. If you are disobedient, I will judge you. The covenant between God and His people. Daniel is serious, biblical, and covenantal in his praying. And then the keynote in the first part of the prayer is confession. Daniel confesses his own sin and the sin of God's people. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. He confesses his own sin. He confesses the sin of God's people. The disobedience of God's people had been comprehensive, so the confession of sin is comprehensive. It is no vague expression of guilt. It is precise. It is something that Daniel has wrestled with in his mind and heart that he might articulate it in prayer. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly and rebelled. The implication is guilt, evil, and rebellion against a sovereign ruler which merits punishment. We have turned, Daniel prays, aside from your commandments and rules, disobedience, even apostasy. And the key to it all is verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. Isaiah, Jeremiah. By not listening to the Word of God through the prophets, the people had not listened to God. It had affected all of God's people. Daniel refers to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to the people of the land. 
The people of God are without excuse, without hope, except for the mercy and grace of God. They were fully deserving of God's judgment that put them into exile in Babylon. Daniel then moves in verses 7 to 14 to acknowledge the fairness of God's judgment. God is righteous. God's righteousness means His total integrity and His consistency. And a clear understanding, as Daniel had, of God's righteousness explains both the fairness or justice of God's judgment and leads Daniel on behalf of the people to repentance. We know exactly where we are with God. His covenant is clear. His anger, His judgment against His people throughout history is just. It is never petty. It is never vindictive. God does not bear a grudge. He judges justly. The scope of Daniel's prayer is all-inclusive. And while the focus in this section of the prayer is on the fairness or justice of God's judgment, there is in verse 9 an allusion briefly to God's love and mercy. To the Lord our God, verse 9, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Daniel uses an intimate word for mercy. It is covenant, family, intimate love. And then in verse 10 and following, Daniel returns to the theme of God's just judgment. He focuses on Moses, the great prophet. The only hope for God's people is to turn back in obedience to the words of Moses, to the words of God. Because of God's people disobedience, there is just uh, judgment. And the verses 3 to 14 uh, run over that ground a number of times. And so, having confessed the sin of God's people and acknowledged the rightness and fairness of God's judgment, Daniel now prays in a spirit of repentance, appealing to God's mercy. Notice he does not skip the first two points. He confesses his own sin out loud. He confesses the sin of God's people out loud. He acknowledges the fairness of God's judgment, and then and only then he appeals to God's mercy. He is not going through the motions. His heart is moved at the affront to God that is His people's rebellion and the justice of God. But now he appeals to God's mercy, the righteous God who punishes His people, will forgive and restore them if they turn to Him in repentance and faith. Daniel recalls with gratitude, God's faithfulness to rescue His people when they repented in the past, how God intervened in the Exodus with a mighty hand. Verse 16 is important. The fact that God is righteous is the reason for the exile, verses 7 and 14, and the fact that God is righteous is the reason Daniel petitions God to end the exile. If there is genuine repentance and obedience, God will hear and act. He will turn away His anger and wrath from His people in keeping with His righteousness. And the final movement in Daniel's prayer is to appeal to God's zeal for the glory of God's own name. Daniel appeals to God to restore Jerusalem and the temple for the sake of the glory of God's own name. There have been hints of this earlier in the prayer, for example, in verse 15, where the events of the Exodus have made a name for yourself as at this day. And in verse 16, Daniel refers to your city God, 
your holy hill, your people. He's bold. It's almost as if he takes God by the shoulders and he says, we have sinned, you have judged, we have repented, you are merciful. Restore your own glory in your city, your hill, the temple, and among your people. And all of it is captured in verse 17 and 18. Just read that with me. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayers of your servant and to your pleas for mercy. This is a man who knows uh, how a covenant works. He knows that if we repent and come to God, he will listen and act. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. And remember, there is no city, there is no temple, there is no sanctuary, there is nothing. Verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Daniel, in his mind, is in Jerusalem, in the temple, which is uh, in rubble, and he conveys that feeling to God, and he says, God, will you look at your sanctuary? It is desolate. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, pay attention and act. That's bold. Delay not for your sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel is no type of Christ. He is a man of faith. He prays, we can pray like him, boldly. But his boldness, appealing to God, has foundations of confession underneath it. We have sinned. We have sinned. Now, that's Daniel's prayer confessing uh, sin. Then his prayer is heard, verses 20 to 23. In answer to his prayer, the angel Gabriel comes to him with a vision, which we get in verses 24 to 27. But the preface in verses 20 to 23 gives us some insights as to the nature and purpose of prayer. We'll see more of that in chapter 10. Notice here in chapter 9, Daniel is still praying when the angel Gabriel came to him. We're told that Gabriel is the man or the angel that Daniel had seen in the earlier vision. That's a reference to chapter 8, verse 13. And Gabriel tells Daniel that as soon as he began to pray, and that is no different for us. As soon as we begin to pray in accordance with the Word of God, as soon as we begin to pray in accordance with the patterns and priorities that God has given us in His Word, as soon as there is genuine repentance in the heart of the believer when they pray, as soon as God hears, Gabriel tells Daniel that as soon as he began to pray, an answer was given. Likewise, we'll see the same in chapter 10, as soon as he began to pray. Now, we can take this as a principle that prayer born of a sincere, humble heart is heard immediately. And the answer is formulated in the mind of God. When God answers, the prayer is for Him to determine. Let me just pause there and ask what's often a question in our heart. Why does God not answer prayer? Now, one answer to that is He doesn't answer prayer in accordance to our time scales. But I think we need to learn from this kind of prayer in Daniel is that God, I'm not going to say does not because God is gracious, but God may not answer perfunctory prayers. As one writer puts it, God rarely answers arrow shots fired at heaven. God wants His people, His churches, His believing people, 
that He wants their hearts to be moved and burdened and contrite and repentant and humbled. And then He answers. Daniel is given insight and understanding. Daniel is greatly loved. Now, let's turn to the answer to the prayer. Don't believe anyone who tells you the answer here is complicated. Now, the vision in verses 24 to 27, which is the answer to the prayer, is referred to as either the vision of the 70 weeks, but I think more accurately, it is the vision of 70 sevens. A week is seven. And the purpose of these numbers in apocalyptic literature are to symbolize Concepts like creation or completeness or perfection or rest. What uh, this vision reveals is something wonderful, complete, perfect, significant. Now, all Daniel had in his mind as he read Jeremiah was that the exile would come to the end and the temple would be rebuilt. That is the summit of Daniel's horizon. Well, until he had the vision in chapter 7, perhaps. But he's only thinking about the restoration of the temple. But of course, this vision in verses 24 to 27 looks way beyond that mountain peak to a far greater mountain peak. Now, before getting into the timeline and you'll see this set out on the sheet. Hopefully, that will help you. Verse 24 is a summary statement of everything that will be achieved in the period that this vision of 77s refers to. In other words, the period of 77s, and there is a particular period in mind, and we'll come to that in a minute. Verse 24 summarizes everything that happens in that period. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, and then these extraordinary words. Because all Daniel wants is the temple to go back up and the ritual sacrificial system to be restored. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. And if your mind jumps to Jesus Christ and any number of gospel texts, gospels, or New Testament epistles, there is a summary of the achievement of the cross, the end of transgression, the end of sin, the atonement for iniquity, the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, Sealing up vision and prophet, Jesus is the last word and the incarnate word, and the most holy place is Christ in His Spirit in you. Boom! Six centuries before Christ. It's wonderful, extraordinary prophecy. And Daniel, when he is thinking about the walls going back in the temple and the sacrifices restarting every day, day in, day out, all the feasts, God hits him between the eyes with this statement, there will be no more sacrifices. Jesus' death is the once and for all end to transgression, end to sin, atonement for iniquity, the bringing in of everlasting righteousness. It will be the final word. And Daniel is getting this six centuries before Christ. Now, look at the timeline with me. Verse 25 covers the first 69 sevens, okay? Let me read them. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the Word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, 
that's Jesus, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled uh, time. And the 69 sevens before the anointed one comes are divided into two periods, one of uh, seven sevens and one of 62 sevens. And the period of seven sevens, this is great uh, for half seven on a Sunday night, it's not complicated. It's not. The period of seven sevens is from the decree Cyrus issued to end the exile to the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. The word to restore and build Jerusalem is almost certainly Cyrus's decree, again in 539 BC. The temple restoration was completed around 516 and dedicated in 444 BC. The reference in Daniel's vision to rebuilding in a troubled time is amplified in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, many, many setbacks. That is the period of the first seven sevens. And that is followed by 62 sevens, the period from the completion of Jerusalem and the temple in 444 BC to the coming of the anointed one, the ruler. The anointed one is the Lord Jesus. Notice Notice the parallels between an anointed one, back to chapter 7, one like a son of man. Remember, one like a son of man was the second Adam, now an anointed one, the sacrificial. Now let's come to the 70th week, verses 26 and 27. Uh, Take one and take two. We get two shots at the same thing verses 26 and 27, both describe separately the final seven. In other words, the verses are parallel and not chronological. It's so important, it's so important that Gabriel gives Daniel this twice. First, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, that's the 62 plus the seven, i.e. 69, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, the first part of that verse is clearly a reference to the death of Jesus. But what do we make of the rest of verse 26? The middle of that verse implies that God's people will destroy the city and the sanctuary. In other words, the city of Jerusalem and the temple. How can that be? Well, I think we take that as a reference to the destruction of the city and the temple in AD 70 by the Roman Emperor Titus. It was the Romans who destroyed the city and the temple, but the underlying cause of destruction was the Jews' rejection of their Messiah. I think that's what's being alluded to there. And then finally, verse 27 He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And the first part of that verse is speaking about the coming of the Lord Jesus, the middle part in the middle of the seven, the middle of the week, his atoning death for sin, and the last part of the week is the destruction of Jerusalem and uh, the temple. And uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was a major, major event in salvation history in AD 70. The temple and the city was completely destroyed. Now, my watch has stopped. Now, what I've tried to do is rattle through that really quickly in order to apply this. Because this is not here to interest us, to confuse us. It's not complicated. Daniel opens the Bible. He knows Jeremiah, and he said, the exile is coming to an end. He's seen the fall of the Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persians. Daniel's response is to pour out his heart to God in confession of sin. 
his own sin and the sin of God's people, the justice of God's judgment in exiling them. He appeals to God's mercy, and he appeals to God's glory. And the summit of the glory that Daniel can see is the rebuilding of a city and the rebuilding of a temple and the restoration of day-in, day-out sacrifices. Daniel's prayer is heard from the moment he prays, and his prayer is answered with this vision of 77s. And God says, yes, Daniel, the walls and the temple, the second temple, as it's called, will be rebuilt. It will not be easy. There will be trouble and difficulties. And then there will be a long, long period of time, 400 and 50 years before an anointed one comes, and that anointed one will do something remarkable. He will take away the need for a temple. There will be no more sacrifices, once and for all atonement, and the final bit in the jigsaw, the final bit of logic, the temple is no longer required, and it will be destroyed. And it was. Now, that's what Daniel was told. And there are details, perhaps, that are confusing, but that's the essence of it. That's the heart of it. Now, in closing, I want us to do two things. I want us to take stock and then apply Daniel 9, and we'll do this over the coming three or four weeks when we finish this series. Now, just stand back from the second half of the book of Daniel, and let me remind us that there are four visions. And the picture of God and His kingdom and His people's destiny, each of these visions paints a brush stroke on the canvas of the sovereignty of God over all things. And we're meant to have them all in our minds. And Daniel is appalled, or he reacts, or he is so moved because he has all of these visions in his mind, and he's trying to sort them out. And the impression in combination they make on him and on us is to truly humble us, so, you'll see there on the second page the four visions. Chapter 7 is the first, chapter 8, and then the 77s here in chapter 9, and then there's one more in chapters 11 and 12. Now, you might remember back to chapter 7. That's the one with the beasts and the horns and the Ancient of Days and one like a son of man. And the point of that vision in chapter 7, which surveys the whole of human history, is that God reigns supremely over all of history. And that is demonstrated in His establishing of an everlasting and a universal kingdom under the rule of His King, referred to as one like a son of man, picked up by Jesus, who said, I am the son of man. That's chapter 7, that glorious big vision. Chapter 8, Daniel was given a vision of a particular period beyond the Medo-Persian Empire to the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, his successors, these four generals, the Didache, we looked at that last time, and that one little king who emerged in the second century BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, who came that close to destroying the temple. And the point of that vision in chapter 8 is not that God reigns over history, but that God reigns through history, preserving His people. And now the third vision that we've looked at tonight, God reigns in saving humanity from their sin. And Daniel's mind is connecting the vision in chapter 7 of one like a son of man why is he a son of man? He's a second Adam. He is the final man. He is the God-man 
who will save humanity from their sin, chapter 9. It's all the gospel in these visions. And then we'll look at the final vision in chapters 11 and 12, which is something like God reigns forevermore. Now, that's the sum of these visions that we are to capture in our minds and hearts individually and corporately as a church. And what a difference it makes when we do, that we sit here, this small company of people here and online, and we know from God's Word that God reigns over all of history, that His kingdom is everlasting and universal, and that His King reigns. We know that God is working out His purposes preserving His people through history. And it comes to the wire that God's people always are preserved. And we've seen in this vision that God reigns in saving humanity from their sin through the sacrificial death of the Anointed One, the Lord Jesus. And then the last vision, God reigns forevermore. And it finishes with these glorious words, Daniel I'm not telling you anything else. Daniel goes, I want to know more. And he says, you know enough. Just go your way, Daniel, to the end, and then you will be raised and you will receive that inheritance. Now, all of that must make, if we wrestle with it and study it, a profound impression on us as a church. This is what God has revealed to us. And in between these visions, you'll see on the sheet there, there are two prayers. Tonight's prayer, confessing sin. And then next time, chapter 10, is an illustration or explanation of what happens when we pray that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Now, let's apply Daniel 9, and this will be a recurring refrain over these coming weeks as we apply the book to our lives as a church question, who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? One of the dangers, uh, Rog pointed this out this week, which I thought was really helpful. One of the dangers as we study the book of Daniel as saints, as God's redeemed people, that we think in some way we have arrived that God has put into us vision and passion and conviction, that we can dare to be a Daniel, that we are living distinctive lives, that we are faithful witnesses. We are like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah standing in the breach. And God has shown us this great vision of His sovereignty. You and I are saints. You and I will inherit the riches of God's everlasting kingdom. We know that in the hardest of times, God will always preserve his people, his church, and we have seen again this vision of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who do we think we are? Oh, how privileged we are. Oh, greatly loved. We're on the right side. We're on the inside. We know the course of human history. And right in the middle of this as Daniel, the God-man, the believer like us, grasps all this stuff, what do we find him doing? We find him confessing his sin. And the point is, as Christians and as a church family, who are taken into a book like Daniel, as saints who will inherit the kingdom of God, are we deeply convicted that we are only here because of God's mercy and His grace? Are we deeply convicted that we are sinners, thoroughly through and through, saved by God's mercy and by His grace? And who are we that God's judgment should not fall upon us? Who are we that God has opened our eyes to see? Never think of Daniel as a hero. Daniel is a sinful man who at the points 
in the exile, perhaps when he grasped as much as any man in his time had ever grasped of the purposes of God, he fell on his knees and confessed his sin. And all the sin of disobedience, and it's the same stuff as we sin, it would be moral stuff, it would be covetous, it would be greed, it would be a lack of distinctiveness, it would be wanting to be like the nations, and Daniel is moved to confess his own sin, and then he confesses the sin of the covenant people of God. And uh, one of the things that, well, I think we are deeply convicted as a church that we are sinners saved by grace. But question two, I think, is less clear. As Christians and as a church family, are we engaging in serious, ongoing confession of our sin? corporately. Why does God gather us together as His people in this church? That we need not be isolated as sinners. Oh, but surely our sin is forgiven at the cross, and so it is. But we still sin. We still offend God. And that's why we need to repent, why we need to acknowledge our sin. Let me tell you something that's happened in my life as a minister. I have a group of five people who are trying to sort out my life, which is quite complicated. And there's all sorts of stuff about rationalizing workloads and what you can do externally and work-life balance and health and all that stuff. But the crux of it all is my spiritual health. And that's what must be attended to. And for the first time in my life as a minister, I have written to my fellow elders or some of them confessing sin. And what a liberty that brings. And if you feel that your pastor is in some way weaker because he is sinful, well, he's not. And I hope and pray that as a church, we will be corporately and individually willing to confess our sins to one another, that we might grow in godliness and in maturity and holiness. And then thirdly, as Christians and as a church family, are we convicted about sin in the wider church, confessing that sin, acknowledging the fairness of God's judgment, and appealing to God's mercy and glory? Too often in the past, I would have preached on a text like Daniel 9 as an exhortation for us to stand in the breach and be the church that prays to God for the uh, apostasy of the church in this country, and we will put it right is the subtext in our consciousness. You only dare to get onto the ground of number three when you have first wrestled on your knees with number one and then wrestled on your knees with number two. Only then does one allow oneself to look out and to bear the burdens of the church to confess its sin, to acknowledge the fairness of God's judgment, and to appeal to God's mercy and glory. One of the wonderful marks of a Christian community is that the heartbeat of our corporate life 
is a constancy of repentance and confession of sin and restoration and forgiveness. And that's the kind of stuff we should be talking about after sermons. Let me encourage us not to isolate ourselves from one another in terms of confessing sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Daniel, your servant, grasped some wonderful things. He was the first to receive these visions that we are studying, that you reign over all of history, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man's coronation, that you reign through history, preserving your people in the darkest of times, that you reign in saving humanity from their sin. We can only imagine what Daniel felt when his mind was on the rebuilding of the altar in the temple, and you said to him, there will be no more sacrifices after the anointed one's sacrifice. And that final vision, that you reign forevermore, and that one day if we are believing people, we will rise and inherit the everlasting kingdom of God. Lord, if you have helped us understand and embrace these visions, how should we respond? Well, tonight we've learned to respond in heartfelt, humble, contrite prayer, deeply convicted that we are sinners saved by grace, serious about ongoing confession of sin. And then, and only then, bearing the issues that beset us in our nation and in our world as the church turns away from its Savior. Lord, make us a humble, praying, contrite, repentant, confessing church family. And as we start perhaps to confess sin to one another with an honesty and with a humility, may we find the sweet fragrance of forgiveness and restoration and true and deep and eternal joy knowing that confessed sin will be forgiven. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.